Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them, and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands, and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventeen palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Well, it's good to be back here, and I'll be speaking for the next three weeks. But before we do that, uh, and if you came in the meantime, my name is Mark Leong, and I'm glad to be here again. So why don't I pray, and then we'll uh, look at this together. Let's pray. Father God, we give you great thanks that you're God who speaks, and speaks to our groups, but also speaks to us individually. So we pray as a group that we would be ready to listen, and ready to be shaped by your word. And as individuals, may you may you change us, please. Um, may your spirit be our work uh, to transform us, that we would be more like Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to prove to you that I do have a family, here is a picture of my family. There's my wife, Grace, and there's my daughter, Annabelle, and my son, Mitchell. And this is a picture of us on a summer holiday. And every summer holiday, we catch a plane and we head up north. And during our summer holidays, this is the best time, isn't it? Because during summer holidays, it's the longest break. During summer holidays, we have the longest days to go out. And during summer holidays, this is the longest time we can have together. You'd say, look at this, we're happy, this is perfect. But, if you're thinking that, it's probably because you don't have kids. And it's probably because you still are a kid. Because working parents like my wife Grace and I are, view summer holidays differently. Sure, we get to spend two or three weeks together as a family, but the summer holidays is ten weeks long. So the question is, what do you do for the other five, six, seven weeks? You've got to figure out how to entertain these kids when you're back at full-time work. You've got to figure out how to entertain these kids who whinge. They whinge and say, oh my goodness, Dad, home is boring. You've got to figure out how to entertain these kids when they complain. Why can't we go back up north to the beach on summer? I'm stuck at home. And you've got to figure out how to handle kids who emotionally manipulate you and they go, Hey daddy, it's holidays. Can't you come home earlier? It's so much better when you're around. Right. See, summer holidays, it's a battle of survival. Every summer holidays is like this. This is a classic meme to all those parents. This is from Hunger Games. May the odds be ever in your favour. See, it is a battle of survival. 
summer holidays. It contains the best moments, but then there's all that other time when you're stuck, wondering what to do and what is coming next. Well, welcome to church this morning, and if it's your first time or we haven't met, my name is Mark Leong, and I'm here for the next three weeks, and I'm going to be giving a three-week talk series called The Lull, Living In Between. See, there are peaks in life. You know, you start your new job, you get a well-deserved promotion, you get married, you have children, but between the peaks... There's that time in between. When life just seems to be buffering. It's static. You're going through the motions. It's the love. It's just like summer holidays, isn't it? It contains the best moments, but then there's all that other time when you're stuck, wondering what to do and what's going to happen next. So how do we live in that zone? How do we handle living? What are we prone to do when we're in the lull? How do you cope? And most importantly, what difference does knowing Jesus make when you're in that zone? Because statistically speaking, most of our life will be lived in the lull. And if Jesus has nothing to say in that zone, then most of our lives will live unexamined, And we'll just drift along. But if Jesus has something to say, then we can live differently in the lull. In fact, the way we live in the lull might become the doorway for others to know Jesus as well. So today, the talk's going to divide into three parts. The first part will be, I'm going to define what the lull is. The middle part, I'm we're going to spend time looking at God's people as they lived in the lull. What does it look like? Let's walk with them. Let's be in their shoes. That's the middle part. And the final part, we're going to see what, Jesus does different, uh, what difference does Jesus make to that lull period. So let's go to the first part of the talk. What is the lull? And here's a definition. The lull. The in-between zone when life is buffering, often between two events, two peaks in life. And under this definition, that means all of us here have experienced the lull. Because it works both in the micro all the way to the macro. On the micro, if you're a worker, what are the two peak events? It's the weekend. (laughs) Yes. And what's the lull? It's the working week. But you can also take it up a little to something in the middle. Think about your job. Statistically speaking, most people will change jobs five or six times now. So you have a job here, and you're going to change to another job. Maybe you're you're in that in-between zone changing. You're in that transition. What am I going to do next? Or we can take it to the larger scale. We can think of it in life stages. You're a high schooler. You're waiting to be a worker. What's the in-between zone? University. You just keep going through the motions. Or you could be not yet married. Oh, you could be a worker and you're wanting to be married and so, hey, that lull is not being married. Being single can feel like a lull. Or you could be married and you're hoping to start a family but 
it hasn't come so quickly and so that's the lull. Or you could be an empty nester, but you can't retire yet, and so you're just kind of stuck going through the motions. See, whatever the scale, the lull feels exactly like that. You are stuck. You can feel numb in this zone. You can feel powerless. So living the lull is not a great place to be. So we have four, I think, coping mechanisms. And they all begin with the letter C. And here we are just trying to understand what the lull is and what it looks like. So here's the first coping mechanism. You might start the countdown. Start the clock and you just wait for the next peak. Or you might complain. Oh my goodness, you know, that previous peak, university was so much better than work. You know, being single was so much better than being married. Oh my goodness, you can just look back and complain. Wish you were back at that previous peak. Or you could look forward and go, oh my goodness, I'm stuck in a lull. The only way to get out is to quickly accelerate towards the next peak. Maybe I need another holiday. Maybe I need another job. Let's quickly change and get that next peak. Or finally, you could just cop it. Suck it up. You're in the lull. Just get on with the job. See the four different ways? You're in the lull. The lull is that in-between zone between two peaks. And we can either count down, we can either complain, we can either cop it, or we can chase. Which one are you? But whichever your response is, we've all experienced the lull. So let's go to the middle part of the talk. And now let's walk with God's people in a particular phase of their history and see how they cope with the law. So let's go to the middle part, God's people in the law. Well, can I show you a picture? Here's another picture. This is, does anyone know what these are? Yeah, a couple of people laughing. If you're smiling, that's because you've got the complete set. You're thinking, yes. And if you're a parent with young kids, you're thinking, no, I just wasted a lot of money trying to get this. But these are ushies. They're the Lion King ushies from Woolworths, and the whole idea is to complete is to get a complete set and think, yes, I've got everything. Now, my son had a favourite ushi, my five-year-old son Mitchell, and it was precious to him. And it was this one. It was the blue ushi. This is just like so trivial, but he loved it. He would put it in his pocket every time we go anywhere we go. It would be in his pocket. We finally got it. Yes. It was precious to him, and then all of a sudden he came home one day, and it was not in his pocket. And so what did we all do? Annabelle, my wife and I, we just, we just said, oh my goodness, and we tore the house upside down, we retraced our steps, we looked high and low, under couches, we even looked in the toilet in case it fell down, we looked everywhere, but we came up short. And my son was devastated. He was crushed. Because there's nothing more disappointing in life, nothing more disconcerting than going on a search that proves futile. And when we walk with God's people and when they experience the lull, that's what we see. God's people go on a search and it proves futile. Let's read the story of God's people, starting with Exodus 15, verse 20 to 23. I'm going to put the uh, verses on the screen so you can read it up there as well. 
So Exodus 15, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur for three days they travelled. You see, actually, we've just had the peak moment in Exodus. Why? Because Moses has just led God's people through the Red Sea. What happened in the Red Sea? Wow, the, uh, in the story of Exodus, God's people, they were slaves, they cried out to God, God answered their prayer, they escaped, Pharaoh's army chases them, they think they're free in jeopardy, but God delivers them. Pharaoh's army is destroyed, they're all lost in the Red Sea. And just before these verses, have had the party of all parties. Why? Because they've been personally saved, their enemy has been destroyed and their trust in, in this God, in the God of Israel, has been vindicated. And so they've just celebrated. This is the peak moment. They've just finished it. They're leaving the peak moment. And in fact, they know they're about to head to another peak moment. This is a little bit earlier. This is the song they sang when they're celebrating just after the Red Sea. Exodus 15, 13 or 18. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. You see, they've just come through the Red Sea, that's the peak, and as they're celebrating, as they're singing, they realise they're going to the next peak. God is going to bring them and plant them on the mountain where his sanctuary will be. They've just experienced great victory, their trust indicated, and they know God is going to take them to where he is. He's going to establish them in the promised land. See, the past has secured their future. They are the two peaks. And so what happens next? Well, God's people enter the in-between zone. They enter the love. And what do they experience? Well, let's read on. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert shore. For three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. Now walk with these people. Can you imagine what it would be like? Rocking up to Marah. You're thirsty. You're on a search. You've been dragging your feet for three days, wishing for the cool waters of the Red Sea, but now you're in the desert. There's grit, there's sand between your toes... Your legs are getting a bit heavier, and then you see it in the distance. Water. Your legs become a bit lighter. It's the promise of water, and so the drag becomes a walk, becomes a run. You gather speed, you sprint, and you grab a cup of water in your hand, and 
and you put it to your lips, and it's bitter. Your search is futile. See, during the lull, what we see is one coping mechanism is to search. Now, this might be wise and a necessary choice. God's people needed water after all. They were in the desert, so they searched water. There's nothing wrong with that. But searches can also flow from a less healthy train of thought. Can't it? You know, the thought might have been, God, well, God's got my future. He's directing me to his sanctuary. I know that. But will God take care of me today? Will God take care of me in that in-between zone? Because I've just been walking and doing the same thing and seeing the same sin again and again. But no matter the cause, whether it's a healthy or unhealthy prompt to search, when the search proves in vain, you're left distraught, aren't you? Because all you're left is with the pieces. You experience bitterness rather than sweetness. And so what's your knee-jerk reaction? How would you act? What are you prone to do? What would you what would you have asked God for in that moment? Well let's read on the story. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? In the lulls of life, we are prone to search, sometimes out of godly necessity, sometimes out of an unhealthy, ungodly questioning. But when our search draws a blank, we tend to grumble. Have you caught yourself doing that as you've experienced the lull on a granular, on the micro level? You know, during your working week. Are you prone to grumble? Maybe between the holidays. Are you prone to grumble? Maybe in your life stage, are you prone to grumble? See, whether it's the new job you prayed for, which over-promised but under-delivered, whether it's the hope of a blossoming relationship, a romantic relationship which doesn't turn out, or maybe it's the simple joy of starting a family which even that proves dis- difficult, those moments in the lull, I think in the Bible is incisive. Because when your life is stuck on buffering, the default murmur of your heart is to grumble. So how does God respond to our grumbling? How does he deal with this grumbling? If we're in the lull and there's an appetite in our heart or in our stomach to grumble, what does he say? And most importantly, what difference does Jesus make? So we did part one, we defined the lull and looked at what that is and how we've all experienced. The middle part, we've walked with some people, God's people, and seen that they're tempted to search in the lull, and when they come up short, we grumble. So let's go to the final part of the talk. What difference does Jesus make? Now one of the shows my wife and I like to watch is Bondi Rescue. It's a show that is like we kind of tune out and we watch it. Uh, we like the beach, as you saw uh, uh, from the beginning slide. And we've decided that it's got the wrong name. It shouldn't be called Bondi Rescue. Rescue. It actually should be called 
tourist rescue. Because there's always a tourist that needs rescuing. Actually, we think it should be called Asian rescue because every single episode there is one Asian who needs rescuing. And we've even figured out the formula. It's either the one-third mark or the two-thirds mark of the movie, of the show. We've watched so many. So we just wait. we wait for it going... Great, my wife and I go, the Asian is coming now! And sure enough, there's an Asian who swims out and gets rescued, and it's the same move. They see the person rescued, and then the TV camera pans up, and there's a sign which says, do not swim. Dave is coming, and my wife and I go, oh! You know, that's what everyone thinks we are when we go to the beach. We are that Asian tourist who doesn't know how to swim. And every time we see the, this, uh, this Asian swimmer pulled back in, we are left wondering, hey, it's great, they've been rescued, they have life, isn't this wonderful? But surely the rescue is not enough. Someone needs to teach them how to swim. Someone needs to teach them how to read a sign, do not swim. But left as they are, there's something missing in them. And the same can be said that when we've experienced a futile search in our life, when we've tasted bitterness rather than sweetness, we could ask God, hey God, just give us something sweet. Hey God, please fix this situation. But if that is all that we receive from God, how would we be better off? I think there's still something missing in that circumstance. Because as we walk again with God's people, we'll see that God does something even more. See, God doesn't just rescue us. God changes us as well. See, he doesn't just pull us out of the water and say, hey, you're rescued, that's great. I'm going to give you what you need. But he does the harder work of changing us. And this is what we see in uh, this verse here. Exodus 15, 25-26. How does God respond to their grumbling? Well, there the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. See, firstly, God here is a God who heals you. God is like an expert doctor. God diagnoses what you need and he fixes you. I can make this better. And time and time, God does supply what we lack when we pray. But if that is all that God did, that wouldn't be enough. It would be like the person from Bondo Rescue pulling us and giving us, giving us life by leaving us. Without, because God here says something more. God also says, I test you. The Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. Now we need to be be careful how we understand this word test. This is not kind of the, you know, as uh, I know my default is as a test, and this is kind of my Asian upbringing. I just think of an exam. You know, God is putting here people to a test, his people to see whether they pass or fail. God is trying to assess them. But that's not the way the word test is being used here. The idea of test here is not an assessment, but it's actually the idea of disciplining. 
It's the idea of refining. It's the idea of training. It's the idea of building a fitness base. See, God is not an examiner waiting for his students to fail or trying to maintain a professional standard, making sure everyone meets it. No, 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 that's not the way God is. God is a physical trainer. He's a physiologist who gets down and teaches his people the right techniques, the right habits, how to build resilience, how to build strength. What are the healthy habits they can occupy? See, God is not just the doctor who says, hey, I'm going to give you the antibiotics. God actually gives you, changes you as well. He heals and he tests. See, God loves you just the way you are, but loves you too much to leave you just the way you are. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas and Easter. That's what we celebrate in Jesus' birth and Jesus' death on the cross. Because there we see a God who loves us just the way we are, to offer us forgiveness and life. He rescues us, but he also loves us too much to leave us just the way we are. And so by his spirit, he changes us as well. See, God loves his people too much just to heal them, but he tests them and changes them. And he does that to curb their grumbling. God puts moments in our life, decisions, people even, to refine and strengthen you. This is not just some random coincidence. It's actually spiritual training to build spiritual resistance. And so, when we're in the love, we're permitted to even see that futile searches are actually for our good. Because God is refining us and building resilience in us. I have a friend, uh, a friend, I'm just going to make up his name. His name is Joe. Uh, Joe works for the New South Wales government. He's over 50 years old. And he became a Christian two years ago. Uh, and it was through City Bible Forum. He came to one of our courses for the curious and he decided as a 50-year-old, uh, as an over 50-year-old, to follow Jesus. And then after that course, every Monday on a fortnightly basis, we would read the Bible, 12.15 to 1.15 in our office. And uh, he started a journey and I would read the Bible with him. And he has, he, he has a lot of life experiences lived for over 50 years, but by his own admission, he kept on telling me, Mark, 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 I'm only a baby Christian. You, you need to, you know, please, you know, are you sure you want to read the Bible with me? I'm only a baby Christian. It's probably old stuff we're going through, but, you know, are you sure? I'm going, hey, hey, Joe, Joe, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. I love reading the Bible with you. Um, and... However, as as a follower of Jesus and having taken these baby steps, he still hasn't been able to pluck up the courage to tell his wife or his two children yet that he's a follower of Jesus. So that's something that we've been wrestling with together. But November um, last year, um, I got a message from Joe. Um, And we'd actually... 
I had stopped reading the Bible for a little bit, and it was unlike him. I was gonna, I was gonna give him a call to ask him why, but I got this message, and then he sent me this picture. This is Joe, and he said, "Mark, I had these headaches. I wasn't quite sure, and then I had a bit of a tremor in my hand, and I went to the GP, and the GP said you should go to the uh, see a doctor." They did a, a scan and they found, found out he had multiple uh, brain tumors. And they rushed him and he had an operation and he's had chemo and other um, various um, operations. Uh, he was in remission and now he's gone back in for some more because the uh, treatment wasn't as effective. And throughout that, uh, this last year, I've been praying for Joe and I feared for his infant faith. I'm thinking, wow. This guy, Joe, has only followed Jesus for two years. I I just don't know whether this challenge to his health is going to shake his faith. Uh, Maybe maybe he'll he'll fall over. And looking at Joe's life over the last year, it really has been the life in the lull. It's been on hold. He hasn't been on. He hasn't been at work. He's been in and out of hospitals, seeing various specialists. He's been on treatment, and then his body couldn't cope, so he's been off treatment to recover, and then back on treatment. And I'm thinking, wow, I reckon all of this, the weight of all of this being stuck in between, would surely crush him. I prayed earnestly to God that God would heal him. Please, God, give this man a break. Make him better. He's a young follower of yours. Please do that. That's got to be the best outcome, I thought. But I fail to realise how much God loves Joe. See, healing Joe would have been too easy for our God. Because God wanted to mature his infant faith. This is a God who not only heals, but he changes us as well who not only loved Joe just as he is, but loves Joe too much to leave leave him just the way he is, and so wanted to change him as well. And this is what Joe wrote to me and shared with me. Here's an excerpt of what I said to my mate last night. Pete, I'm, um, I'm, I'm getting great care from medical professionals and great support from my family, friends, work colleagues, the Peno footy family, and being prayed for by lots of folks, many of whom I've never even met. It's all been very humbling to know that so many people care. Not sure if you know, but I've had a growing faith in Christ and the Lord since when I turned about, about since about when I turned 50. I've no doubt that my faith has sustained me through this difficult time and has at the same time strengthened my faith. It's the first time my faith has been really properly tested and I think so far it has felt strong. This has allowed me to stay calm and has provided great comfort to me, so please don't be too upset. I feel I'm in good hands both physically and spiritually, so that's my testimony to you. Oops, Mark, oh yeah, something, sorry. Mark, I'm finding it increasingly liberating to be able to testify to the Lord's greatness, his great love and protection. Ironically, my biggest struggle remains with my wife. I've tentatively raised it a couple of times in passing, but struggling to have a DNA with Diane. Pray for us, please.
If anything, Job had got it all wrong. He didn't have the infant faith. It was me who had an infant faith. He had the more robust faith. I had asked too little of God because my picture of God was just too small. I did not think it possible that Job, in his understanding of God, could see even all that he's going through as something that, as a gift from God, to make his strength even stronger, that he'd pluck up the courage to send this SMS and share his testimony with people who didn't know he was a follower of Jesus and praise God for it. That's amazing. And his God is my God and is your God. See, at first glance, the lull and the lulls in life are something you and I should fear. But in the lull, God is both the doctor and the physio. He heals and he tests. He builds resilience in us. So our knee-jerk reaction need not be grumbling, for God is building spiritual resilience in us. See, rather than fear, when we're in that lull, when we're stuck between the peaks, we can be expectant, waiting to see how God will change us. So that even in the darkest days, we may even testify to God's goodness. And like Job, find that utterly liberating. Because God is at work and is with us in the love. And that is the difference that Jesus makes when I pray. Dear God, thank you that you're a God who gives us the peaks in life, but you also give us the lulls. We confess that it can be very hard to live there when life really feels stuck, when it's just buffering when we're going through the motions. But we're thankful that you don't just pluck us out and give us another peak, but instead you work through these situations to build resilience in us. Thank you that we can see examples in your word of this. And thank you that we can see this, the examples of this with people around us. Because you're a God who loves us too much just to leave us as we are. Pray that you give us great hope, great security, because you're with us. And we give you thanks for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.